enjoyed seeing you since I saw you last time. So it's good to be here. She's from Kenya. Jenny sends her greetings, says hi to you all. And Charlie and Marilyn, as you heard there online, they're listening to us and they're saying hello as well. So that's nice. So I've been very busy. I was in South Africa for a month in June. I went there to some meetings at the beginning of the month and the end of the month and I had a kind of hole in the middle and I was going to fly back to Kenya. But uh, people discovered I had this hole in the middle so suddenly I found all sorts of people packing it with meetings. I never did get back to Kenya, I just stayed there for the month preaching everywhere. Especially interested in uh, the free stage which I always felt was a bit of a backward place, a bit racist. But um, I found a lot of things going on there and a lot of good people doing a good work, so I enjoyed that. I was in East London. And then the plane I was due to go back to Kenya got overbooked, there's 20 overbooked, and I got pushed off. So I came straight to the straight to UK and skipped Kenya. <laughs> so I'm interested in the letters of the Hebrews, which is about inheriting the promises and uh, living the life of faith and so that we lay hold of God's promises. And uh, some of you have maybe heard me on it before. Although I'm somewhat at the end of Hebrews, so you won't have heard me speaking on Hebrews 9, 10, 11, and so on. I used to preach on it so much in, in Nairobi that at one point they started calling me Mr. Hebrews. <laughs> but, uh, I'm of the opinion that we need a Hebrews Reformation. The 16th century Reformation under Luther and Calvin and so on, I would say it was a Romans Reformation. It was all about Romans. Luther got saved by studying Romans. The uh, Catholic Church didn't help him. The mystics didn't help him. But the Bible helped him. He found salvation through the Bible. And he found salvation through Romans. Well, just one verse in Romans changed the whole world. And it was an amazing thing. In When was it? The 31st of October, 1517. He put a notice on a notice board in a language that nobody could read. He put it on the notice board in Latin. The ordinary people couldn't read it, calling for a meeting. And uh, nobody ever came to the meeting. It was a notice on a notice board in a language that nobody could understand for a meeting that nobody ever came to. But it totally changed the world. Within a week, somebody did translate it into German, and the whole of Germany was reading it. Within a couple of months, the Pope was reading it. Within a year, every university in Europe was reading it. It totally changed the world. But it was, a, it was a Romans Reformation, and everything revolved around Romans and Galatians, and Protestantism came into being. It was very much about the new birth, which is right, and about justification, which is right. But those are the themes of the Gospel. But I'm of the opinion that we need a Hebrews Reformation, and that's a bit different, and the focus is a bit different. The letter to the Hebrews has had a bad history when it first came into the Christian world. People misunderstood it. It's the letter that has more warnings in it, more frightening warnings in it, than any other place in the Bible. There are six places in Hebrews where it warns us that if we fall by the wayside, and I don't know the translation, fall away, Greek word parapipto means to fall by the wayside, fall down alongside you. If you fall aside from where you're meant to be, you can get to the point where you cannot recover. It's impossible to be renewed unto.
to repentance, says Hebrews chapter 6. God won't renew you, and you can't renew yourself, and nobody else can renew. It's impossible to renew them unto repentance, says Hebrews 6. That's a frightening warning. It's terrifying, the thought that you could fall by the wayside in some way, and it'd be impossible for you to be ever renewed. So it's a scary book, and there's six of those warnings in Hebrews, and they're all very frightening. I think with a fiery expectation of judgment, the Lord will judge his people. He says, our Christians, how shall we escape? Not how shall they, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So it's a terrifying letter in some ways. And it was badly interpreted by the early church. They got hold, by, by the early church, I mean the second century church. They got hold of the idea that if you sinned after baptism, they took the word enlightened, in Hebrews 6, as in verse 4, if you've been enlightened and then fall away, they took the word enlightened to refer to baptism, water baptism. The early church, the second century onwards, was very obsessed with the notion of water. They, in a very extreme way, they believed that baptism was the thing that saved you. And when you read the early second century writings, they don't think you're saved when you believe. You get saved when you get in the water. You get in the water unsaved and you come out of the water saved. They literally believe the water itself did something. Grace was in the water. It was partly because they came out of the Greco-Roman world where there were many waters and ablutions and washings. So they tended to say our water is stronger than your water. Your water doesn't work, our water does work. <laughs> so they came to a very high doctrine of justification. I was actually baptised, some of you have known this already, I was actually baptised by a member of the Church of Christ denomination, and uh, with Peter and Warwick, we were baptised at the same time, and um, one day I met the head of the Church of Christ missionary organisation, and uh, I was preaching, he was listening to me, but he didn't like me. And uh, I found out that he didn't think I was a Christian. And I was a bit puzzled about this. And then I sort of made some inquiries as to why he didn't think I was saved. I was baptised by one of his missionaries. I was baptised by immersion. I was baptised as a believer. I, I thought I would have got it right, you know. I, 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 was, I got everything right, I believed. But he still didn't think I was saved. So I made some inquiries as to why he didn't think I was saved. And I found out the answer. The answer was, even though I was baptised by one of his missionaries, by immersion, as a believer in, in water, fish, fish pond actually, maybe that stopped, maybe that blocked the thing from working, but um, he still didn't think I was saved, and the reason why he didn't think I was saved is I was not getting baptised in order to be regenerated. I was meant to be thinking, I'm not saved now, when I get in, I'll be saved, when I come out, I'll be born again. And because I didn't believe in that, he didn't think that I was truly a Christian. And, uh, but that was the doctrine of the early church. They, they had the same doctrine as that, so a very high doctrine of water baptism. And so Hebrews began to be interpreted in that way. And the emperor Constantine got baptized on his deathbed. When he was dying, he got baptized. You can see why. He was a military guy, sort of killing people in his armies. He was scared he'd commit some sin uh, and, and not be saved after all. So he, he stayed unbaptized until he died. And, you know, just before he was dying, he got baptized. He was playing safe. But, um, so that was the view of the early church. And it got caught up with the 
casting system, the casting doctrine of doing penance and so on, he got caught up with all of that. So the whole of Hebrews had a bad um, history in its interpretation. When the Reformation came along, Luther, Calvin and so on, they had to decide what to do with Hebrews. Luther didn't think he should be in the Bible. If you read a, to, to this day, if you read a Luther translation, you'll find Hebrews stuck at the end somewhere. Luther didn't think he should be in the Bible. Um, Calvin came to the doctrine that's known as the doctrine of temporary faith. You know the verse in, in Luke chapter 8 where it says they believe for a while and but these having no roots, says Luke chapter 8, they believe for a while. And Calvin formulated his teaching about temporary faith that you could believe for a while. You get a little bit of illumination. You are enlightened. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, you believe for a while, but temporary faith is not real faith in Calvin's teaching. It's a professing faith, but these have no roots, says Hebrews chapters, uh, Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, yes, and, um, and in time of temptation they will fall away, says Luke 8 in the parable of the sower. So Calvin got hold of that, and he held to a doctrine that we can call the doctrine of temporary faith, which is not real faith. It's only professing faith, which is not really saved. But that doctrine too is disastrous. And I, if I spent time on it, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but uh, if I spent time on it, I think I could show you that that doctrine is totally disastrous. Because if you are enlightened but not saved, how will you ever know whether your faith is real faith or just being enlightened without being saved. And if you, st you, you find there's no way of answering that question. I've um, had an interest in this subject for many, many years. I grew up with the Puritan view. I grew up with Calvin's view, although I had to change my mind. But um, if you try to live with that view, as I had tried to do many years ago, you'll find that everybody's in trouble. Nobody knows whether they're really saved or not. What's the good of being once saved, always saved, if you're not sure whether you're once saved? It doesn't help you. You find people who have a strong doctrine, you can't lose your salvation, but then they're not sure whether they're saved anyway. So what's the use of that? And I can show you that. I think of a certain preacher, those of you from South Africa would know his name. I think of a certain famous preacher who I had a chance to talk to about this. He said to me, all my life I've wondered whether I'm really saved. He was a famous preacher in South Africa, some of you would know his name. I think of a theological student I talked to about him once. He said, all my life I've wondered whether I've only ploughed ground. You plough up the ground in order to plant the seed. But there has to be kind of breaking up of the soil first. He said, all my life I've wondered whether I've only ploughed ground and I've not really had the seed of the gospel. I think of Asa Hale Nettleton. Have you ever heard of Asa Hale Nettleton? He was a great evangelist in America, the enemy of, kind of theological enemy of Charles Finney, and a great, a great man. But as the hell Nettleton said, the most I've ever been able to say about myself is, I think it possible I might get to heaven. To which the answer is, that's not the gospel. The gospel's not, I think it possible I might get to heaven. The gospel is, I know whom I believe, I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him. You're not as you were hoping you might be saved, that's not the gospel. There's immediate assurance in the gospel. You have no assurance of salvation, something wrong somewhere. 
So that teaching doesn't ever help you. Many of the Puritans, 17th century Puritans in Britain, Holland, Scotland, America, many of them were in trouble on their deathbed. When they came to die, they had trouble about knowing whether they were going to heaven or not. Uh, I think of the way in which John Cotton died. John Cotton was a famous American Puritan. He did have assurance of salvation. And people attacked him because he believed in grace so much. They accused him of being such a believer in grace that he was he, he was in danger of promoting loose living. People always scared of grace. But John Cotton had great assurance of salvation. When he came to die, all of his Puritan critics came to pray for him as he was dying. And uh, Thomas Shepard, one of the famous Puritans in America, began to pray, to him, pray for him. He was dying, his eyes, was eyes were closed, and he was dying. And some Puritan prayed for him, that the Lord would lift up the light of his countenance upon him. And Cotton opened his eyes and said, he's done it already, brother, he's done it already. <laughs> Cotton had assurance of salvation, and he knew he was going to heaven. All these Puritans, they weren't quite so sure. Here's someone with no, no assurance of salvation, praying for someone who's dying. The guy who's dying got perfect assurance of salvation. He's done it already, brother, he said, he's done it already. <laughs> he went to heaven in triumph. So, Hebrews has always had that problem. So, people who believe you can fall away of salvation, they, they think they like Hebrews. People who think you can lose your salvation, they, they think they like Hebrews. But they don't quite like Hebrews. And I'll tell you why. Because people who think you can lose their salvation normally believe that you can repent and get it back. And that's not what Hebrews says. Hebrews says, if you, if you lose it, you've lost it, you can't be renewed. They, they like the idea, they think they like the idea of losing salvation or as, a, as, a, as an idea. But they don't like the idea that you can't get it back. So they don't like Hebrews. People who believe you can't lose your salvation, they don't like Hebrews because Hebrews keeps on saying you, you can lose something. So they don't like it either. So everybody's in trouble. Some, some don't like it because you can't get it back. Some don't like it because they think it's teaching you can lose salvation. So the great question that we must ask is, what is Hebrews all about? That's the big question. You should ask that with any book of the Bible. When you come to books of the Bible, you should always be, begin by asking, what's the theme of this book? What's the whole thing all about? Where's it going? If you start a book misunderstanding what it's all about, you, you'll go astray. Remember many years ago, I'm an admirer of Florence Nightingale. She's one of my heroes or heroines. Great lady, most intelligent lady I know of 19th century England, and uh, always admired her. And I read every biography I can ever find of Florence Nightingale. One day uh, I, I read about a new biography of Florence Nightingale. I didn't like it. And after a while I, I gave up and uh, didn't bother finishing it. About a year later I thought I'd have another go reading this biography that I had not enjoyed. But as I started the second time, I noticed something on the front cover which I hadn't noticed before. The title was Florence Nightingale, but the um, subtitle was The Story of a Remarkable Family. And it suddenly dawned on me that it wasn't just about Florence Nightingale, it was about her family and how they persecuted her for wanting to be a nurse. They just wanted to get married to some rich guy. And uh, how it was very... Um, untraditional for an upper-class lady to want to go off to Siberia to, do a, to fight in some battle. She should be getting married to somebody. They were kind of persecuting her because she wanted to do her own thing. 
And suddenly you realise it wasn't just about Florence Nightingale, it was about 19th century England as a whole and how women were badly treated. So I began to read it with new eyes and looking for new things. The second time, I loved it. But you see, the reason why I didn't like it the first time I did the second time is the first time I wasn't seeing what, what the book was all about. I was trying to get into the details of Florence Nightingale and her life. The second time I realised it wasn't just about her. It was about the whole context of 19th century Britain and what it was like for a woman trying to have a career in Crimea or somewhere in those days. And I read it with, with new eyes because I could see what its theme was. And suddenly the book came alive to me and I loved it in the, second, in the second reading. And the Bible's like that. If you read it with the wrong ideas of what the book is about, you, you'd be confused, you wouldn't know where it's going. You must always ask the question, what's this thing all about? So what's Hebrews all about? Well, there are three possibilities. Possibility number one is it's warning you about not losing your salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We, we neglect our salvation, we'll lose it, and we'll be in trouble. We won't be able to be repenting, repent we can't be renewed. It's warning you, you might think, about losing salvation. Is that, is that what it's about? No, I don't think so. Because Hebrews says that when Jesus goes into the heavenly place on our behalf, he gives us eternal redemption. Not temporary redemption, not loaned redemption, not borrowed redemption, not redemption until you backslide. You're given it forever, says Hebrews. Eternal redemption. It says we are sanctified forever by the body of Christ, Hebrews chapter 10. So it's not talking about losing salvation. It says the exact opposite. We've been given salvation. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, says, says Jesus in another place. Not about losing salvation at all. Or is it, is it Calvin's view, is it about making sure that you really are saved? Well, I don't think so. And um, we could explore that idea. How, how, do you, how do you make sure that you really are saved? Is it by producing good works? You live such a good life that you're sure you're really saved. Well, I ask you the question, have you got there yet? Are your works so good that you say to yourself, well, now I'm really saved? Actually, if you try that, you'll always say, well, no, I think maybe I'm not, because your works are not as good as they ought to be. You say, I, I, know, I know I say because I know I'm living such a godly life. Oh, really? Is your godly life so, so godly that you now feel that you, you can be saved? And isn't, isn't that coming back to, to saving yourself by your good work? It's not the gospel anyway. You'll always be in trouble if you're trying to examine how worthy you are, because you'll always feel you're unworthy. Indeed, I could put it like this. If your salvation comes by anything in you, you will always ask the question, have you got it enough? If it comes by being good, are you good enough? If it comes by understanding theology, do you understand enough? If it comes by reading your Bible, do you understand it enough? If your salvation is coming by you, you'll always have the question, do I have that thing enough? And you'll say, well, maybe I don't. And so you'll not be sure of salvation. And that's what happens when you try to build your salvation upon yourself. You're always in trouble. Because, because you know, how, how can you be strong enough to build to build your assurance upon yourself as your own foundation? You can't do that. You'll always be in trouble. Anybody who builds their assurance of salvation upon themselves will find they don't have any assurance. Don't you build your assurance upon yourself? You'll never, you'll never arrive at anything. You know, you know the, the old-fashioned hymn, I need no other argument, I need no other plea, it is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. That's all you need to know. If you know that, you're saved. 
you don't build you don't build your insurance on yourself. And even verses like one John, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. It's the kind of last thing you do. You know, you don't start there. In the end, you'll say, "No, I know I'm saved. I can see how this changed my life." You don't begin there. If you begin there, you'll be in trouble. You can end there, but don't begin there. You can finally say, you know, I'm not the person I used to be. Okay, that gives you a kind of extra confirmation. Calvin used that word. Calvin used the word confirmation. It confirms that you're saved. But don't put it at the beginning. You put it at the beginning, you're never quite sure whether you're saved or not. So that doesn't work. And people who read Hebrews that way, they're in trouble. When somebody comes to me as a pastor, and they start asking a question, and the question goes like this, Pastor, it's a verse in the Bible that's always troubled me. Can I ask you about it? I always know it's going to be Hebrew 6. Even before, even before they carry on, uh, on yeah, Hebrew 6. I know what's coming. That question gets asked more than any other question when it comes to verses in the Bible that people ask about. That just worries them. And I've known people just weep with distress, or weep with, with joy, when I try to convince them it's not about losing their salvation. And they suddenly think, they suddenly see they don't have to have those problems. And they're so rejoicing to make that discovery. Now, it's not about confirming whether you're saved. You'd always be in trouble if you take it that way. So what's Hebrews all about? I would say that Hebrews is about the middle stage of salvation. I'll explain what I mean. Hebrews is about the middle stage of salvation. You see, the Bible always says to us that salvation comes to us in three stages. And so the Bible can say things like, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You can put it in three tenses. You have been saved, you've got it. You are, but you're also being saved. Work out your salvation. God is at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure. It can also say things like, he who endures to the end shall be saved. It could put salvation in those three tenses. Or think about the illustrations of salvation. When the Bible is using various pictures to illustrate salvation, think about those illustrations. Salvation can be put to us as like being a building. It's like building something up. It can be put to us in terms of a journey, as, as Hebrews does. It could be put to us as being a bit like a, a marriage. You, you're betrothed, and then finally there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you if you look at those illustrations, you'll, you'll see that they're always threefold. There's always three stages. No other salvation can, no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid. You begin by standing on a foundation, and you build yourself up in your most holy faith. Then it becomes your whole life that the church becomes a dwelling place of the spirit. The foundation, the building, somebody moves in three stages. Well, think of Hebrews. Hebrews puts it in terms of a journey. Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Then they have to go on a journey. And they go through the wilderness, they cross the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, not, not our Red Sea, but the, the lakes of northern Egypt. They cross the Sea of Reeds in northern Egypt. <coughs> They go through the wilderness, they cross through the Jordan, they conquer their enemies, and finally they enter into rest in the land. They're redeemed, they travel, they enter into rest. Three stages. Or sometimes it's put in terms of marriage. 
we are betrothed to Christ, says the Bible. And then in ancient marriages, there were a lot of washings and ablutions and cleansings before the great wedding day. And so you're washed and cleansed and prepared for marriage. And then there's the marriage supper of the day. Three stages, you're betrothed, you go through these washings and ablutions, and then there's the marriage. Three stages. It's similar to the use of the word kingdom. The kingdom has come. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out Beelzebub, then the kingdom of God has come among you. Yes, but also it's like a mustard seed which is growing and filling the world. And one day the kingdom will come. Three stages. It's always in this three stages. And the three stages are different. Stage number one is being born again. It's being justified, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Becoming a child of God, being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. You've got it, it's finished, it's accomplished, and you're there, you're built upon the foundation. Stage number two is working out your salvation, growing in grace, rescuing yourself from your old sinful ways with the strength of the Spirit, learning what God's got for your life, your, your calling, your service, your way of serving God. You're progressing and growing, learning to love people learning to hear God's voice. You're traveling on a journey and you're learning. You are being saved increasingly from the old impact of sin in your life. The third stage is the resurrection of the body. We've not got that. We're waiting for the redemption of the body, says Romans chapter 8. And when you eat in the resurrection, that you're given heavenly rewards, you're given blessings that those who live for the Lord, the Lord will bring everything back and say, I've kept all these things for you, here they are, enter into your, your final inheritance, the final stage of your inheritance. So kingdom is, is, is come, it is coming, it will come. You yourself are transferred into the kingdom of grace, you are inheriting the kingdom, those who do such things can't inherit the kingdom, but those who live for God can inherit the kingdom now in this life. The rich young ruler asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not, he's not asking how to get saved. He's asking how to inherit everything that God has got for him. And finally, it's the kingdom of glory that Jesus gives us our final reward and so on. All of these things have three stages. And so Hebrews, and I want to argue that Hebrews is about that middle stage. It's not about getting saved. And the warnings are not about losing salvation. It's about this middle stage of laying hold of what God has got for you. Travelling through the wilderness, travelling through the difficulties of life, and laying hold of the promises, inheriting the promises, by faith and patience, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12. By faith and patience, by persisting in faith and going on in faith, you inherit the promises. It's about this middle stage. And the warnings are about losing, not losing salvation, not losing heaven, but losing what God wants to give you in that middle stage. And so Hebrews chapter 10 says, if we sin willfully, there's nothing but a fiery expectation of judgment. But then it says, you don't need to do that. Hold, hold on to your first confidence. Don't, don't neglect salvation. And persist. Hold on to your first faith, your first confidence. Because it will be, it will be what? Because you'll, you'll be saved? No. Because you won't lose your salvation? Doesn't say that. Because you'll prove you really are saved? Doesn't say that. What does it say? It says because you will be richly rewarded. 
It's about rewards and inheriting and getting hold of what God has got for you in your life. So that's the theme of Hebrews. It's about inheriting the promises. It's about holding on to your faith, persisting in faith, until you lay hold of that for which God has saved you and your calling and God's plan and purpose for your life. Works come into it. First faith is faith only. No, no works come into it at all. In fact, one of the most extreme statements of the Bible is to tell us that we're saved by doing nothing. To him who does nothing, Romans chapter 4 verse 5, to him who does nothing, he does not work, he's not doing anything. Ordinary Greek word for to do, he not do anything. But he believes in God who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. It is literally true that you are saved by doing nothing. And if you try to do something to save yourself, actually you don't get saved. And plenty of people around are religious, think of thinking Luther. Spent all these years in the monastery trying to save himself. While he's doing that, he's holding up salvation. When he discovers that there's a righteousness which is given him, when he discovers Romans 1.17, a righteousness which is given him, he says, I, I will pull again and I'll get the whole Bible with new eyes. And you see that you're saved without doing anything, but by just letting God give you something, you read the whole Bible with new eyes. And you come into assurance, you rejoice. Every person who gets saved in the New Testament, they, they go on their way rejoicing. They immediately have this joy. I mean, why should you have any kind of sadness if you're saved by doing nothing? And how can you lose it? How can you possibly lose the salvation? How can you, how can you lose nothing? If you're saved by doing nothing, how can you lose it? Something is given you forever and is there, regardless of where you're coming from. How, how can it ever be annulled or kept? And nothing you can do can, can, can block it because it doesn't come into anything you do anyway. So it gives you immediate assurance. You're saved by doing nothing. Remember the prodigal son who comes and says, Father, can I tell me one of your servants? The father ignores him, picking up this rope, put a ring on his, on his finger, put shoes on his feet. He ignores all this talk about serving him. He's not, he's not receiving his son because of his, how good he is. He's not good, he's not good anyway. And now come back, we can have a party because you come back. Don't even do anything. You're my son. And that's the Bible's way of talking about salvation. But you don't go, you don't stay doing nothing forever. Once you're born again, oh, now you can start serving God. And by faith and, and patience, by going on in faith, letting God speak to you, giving you things to do, serving him, working, when you work out your salvation, you don't work for your salvation, but when you've got it, you work it out, you get it moving, you get it doing things. The first stage is by, by doing nothing, receiving a gift. The second stage is not by doing nothing. Don't muddle up those two things. When the Bible says work out your, your salvation, it's not saying work to get saved. It's saying you've got it, now now get it moving, get it working, work it out. So those two stages are different. And if you muddle up those two stages, you'll be in trouble. If you start reading Hebrews as if it's about how you get saved, you'll, you'll always be, Hebrews will always be damaging you, it'll, it'll be helping you. It never did help anybody when they read it in that way. Don't even read it that way. Not about getting saved or being sure you're saved or getting to heaven. It's about by faith and patience inheriting the promises of God. And it's, uh, it works it out in that way over those chapters. So, let me just remind you where Hebrews 
is coming from. He's writing to Jews, they are Hebrew Jews. They're being persecuted. The reason why they're being persecuted is because they have renounced their faith in some ways. They're not still Jews, now they become Christians. It's their fellow Jews who are persecuting them. And life will be easier for them, for these people. Life will be easier for them if they toned down their view of Jesus. If they stop professing faith in Jesus so much, and they just treat Jesus as maybe an angel or a prophet or something, and not as the Son of God, the only Saviour. If they tone down their talk about Jesus, then they might be accepted by their own people, by their fellow Jews, and the persecution might go away. So they're in danger of, as it were, toning down their faith and stop talking about Jesus so much. And they're just trying to be ordinary Jews and go back to Judaism, pick up the Jewish culture, as it were, trying to, to live uh, in a way that stops their being persecuted. And so they're discouraged, they've, they've lost property, some of them have been in prison. No one's been killed yet, they're still alive, but uh, they've been in prison, some of them, and they're in bad trouble. And their danger is to back away from their faith and quit this life of energetically living for Jesus. So this man writes to them. We don't know who he is. He's obviously somebody from Paul's circle of friends. He mentions Timothy, so that shows he comes from Paul's circle of friends. Probably not Paul himself. His, his style is, is not like Paul at all. If you didn't know who wrote any book of the Bible, of the New Testament, and you just read in Greek the 27 books without knowing who wrote anything, you would think it was written by Luke. You would read Luke's Gospel and not know who wrote it. You'd read Acts and you'd say, oh, this is the same guy who wrote Luke. Then you'd read Hebrews and you'd say, oh, this is the same guy again. You'd think that Luke wrote it. It's, it's style of Greek. It's just like Luke. Classical and uh, erudite, difficult to read. If we, if we ever learn New Testament Greek, they'll never begin with Luke, Acts, or Hebrews. Begin with John. He's nice and easy. Luke and uh, Acts and Hebrews are more difficult. They think that Luke wrote it. Tertullian, the early church father, was very dogmatic that Barnabas wrote it. He talks as if he knows he's Barnabas wrote it. And he acts as if he knows. People have often thought that Apollos wrote it. He's got a kind of a few things in Hebrews which remind you of Alexandrian writings and Apollos came from Alexandria. So some people think that Apollos wrote it. Luther thought that Apollos wrote it. Origen said, the famous Origen said, only God knows who wrote it. And, uh, I follow the origin, but we get it, we'll find out. But um, nobody, nobody knows who wrote it, who wrote it, but he's a friend of Paul, obviously. One verse sounds like Paul. When Paul says, I'm, when he says, I'm sending Timothy to you, that sounds like Paul. It's the only verse that sounds like Paul. Maybe Paul got his friends to write it for him. That would, that would explain a few things. That would explain why there's no title, there's no author mentioned. Maybe he said to Luke, you know, teach you write it for me. Maybe he did something like that. What this man is doing, whoever he is, is he's saying to them, don't reduce your view of Jesus, enlarge your view of Jesus. When you're in trouble, you don't, as it were, get a small view of Jesus. You enlarge your view of Jesus. You see how great he is, how big he is, how much he can help you, you know, what persecution you're going through. So he says to them, don't, don't you shrink to treat Jesus just like an angel, to which... To which Angel, did God ever say, you are my son? He's not just an angel. To which angel did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? 
I like to think that's the Archangel Gabriel telling me not to go on too long. Just to give me hope that Hagen will switch back on them. But um, don't treat Jesus just as an angel. He's the Son of God. I can't go back to Judaism because Judaism is pointing to Jesus. Every single thing in the Mosaic covenant is pointing to Jesus. So if you go from Jesus to the Mosaic covenant, you're going backwards, not forwards. So don't, don't go to don't go back to Moses because Moses is just pointing to Jesus. And um, so he argues that the old covenant, everything in it was getting ready for Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, we got lost, we got lost on the way driving here this morning. But we passed various, various notices to Hatfield as Normans. Imagine that we parked under the notice board playing to Normans and we said, no, we've arrived now. No, you've not arrived when you stand up to the notice board. The notice board is only telling you where to go. You'd be very foolish to think, I've arrived in St. Norman's because here it says St. Norman's, I'm here. You'd be very foolish. The Mosaic Covenant is like that. It's pointing you to Jesus. Don't stand up to the notice board. It's sending you somewhere. It's sending you to Jesus. Go where it's sending you to. Don't just stand under the Mosaic law. That's just a notice board, a signboard. Actually, Hebrew says it's a shadow. It just gives you a kind of vague outline. If I were to put my hand under the light, there's a shadow on the floor. There it is, a shadow on the floor. Uh, you can't do anything about it. You can't do anything with it. You can't pick it up and take it home as a souvenir. You can't pick it up and put it in your pocket. It's just a, a shadow upon the floor. It's you do with it. It's empty. The only thing it does is it tells you the shape. That's what it does. And Hebrews says the law of the mosaic system it's just a shadow, it's just a picture of Jesus who's to come, just getting the world ready through Israel for Jesus to come. So don't get stuck with the shadow, says, says Hebrews. The shadow is sending Jesus, and every single thing in the law is about Jesus. The tabernacle is all about Jesus. The, the animal sacrifices are all about Jesus. The, the calendar, the celebrations of tabernacles and Passover and the Day of Atonement, they're all about Jesus. Everything is sending you to Jesus. Don't, don't think you're doing something special by going by keeping the tabernacles. If you're keeping some festival, uh, there are Christians who fly to Israel to keep the tabernacles. They're flying to Israel to look at the shadow. They're flying to Israel, paying fortune, only, only the rich can do it. My poor guys in, in Kibera, they, they can't fly to Israel. They don't have money, only the rich can do it. And they're doing it to look at a shadow, the, the tabernacle is a shadow. Just gives you a shape. It's not the real thing. You can come to Jesus in the middle of Kibera Islam suburb. You don't need the shadow, you've got the real thing. Well, I ride the bike, fly hundreds of miles to see a shadow. That's the real thing. And people think they're being especially Christian. They talk Hebrew, you know, yes, you athletes, they say, as though there's something sort of holy about talking in Hebrew. No, no, this is a shadow. Don't even bother with them. The real thing is Jesus himself. And so the writer says, don't, don't, don't be preoccupied with the, with the shadows. They all point to Jesus. Persist in your faith in Jesus. Work out your salvation. And at one point, Hebrews chapter 11, he will give 20 examples of people who fulfilled their life's calling just by persisting in faith. 
by faith Abel did this, by faith Enoch did that, by faith Noah did this, and Abraham and Moses' parents, and Samson and uh, Gideon. They're very weak people. You, you, you read those people. By faith it is Gideon. Gideon comes in here with the angel appears and says, Hail, hail you mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, oh, I think you've come to the wrong address. You know, you don't know me. You don't, don't you know, I come from the family of Manasseh. You know about Manasseh? Uh, and I come from the smallest family there is, and you're treating me as a mighty man of valor. But you see, the Lord doesn't greet us in terms of what we are. He greets us in terms of what we will be. And in the end, he will be a mighty man of valor. He's greeted like that from, from day one. He comes and says, oh, I've great plans for you. How are you, mighty man of valor? And you say, well, who me? I don't think I can do that. No, no, the Lord's got a plan for your life and your purpose. And he will do great things through you. Don't let you begin that way. And it says that Jesus, our great high priest, is there at the right hand of the Father. And he's praying for us. He's interceding. And he himself was full of the same sort of weaknesses that we have. Jesus came into this world in weakness. He's not in weakness now, but he was in weakness when he came. He was an ordinary human person in some ways, not, not every, in every way, but in some ways. He could be hungry, he could be tired, he could be depressed, he could be angry, he could break down and weep, he could feel pain, he was crucified, he could not know God's will, he could say, Father, if it be possible, I don't know if it's possible or not, but if it be possible, I don't know go this way, can I go some other way? He could not know God's will, he was asking a question upon the cross, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever said that to God? You know, Lord, why, why are you leaving me? What's happening to me? What are you doing to me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked the same question upon the cross. There was something in the cross that puzzled Jesus that he did not know about at that point. He's asking a question. There's no problem you've ever been through. Without Jesus doesn't know what you feel like. You can never say to the Lord, Lord, you don't know what it feels like. You can never say that to Jesus. If you ever do, he might come back and say, oh, I do know what he's feeling like. He'll tell you something. He'll tell you how he, how he suffered, how he was poor. And you know how poor the family of Jesus was? They were so poor. In the law, you gave a Thanksgiving when a child was born. You to bring an ox, or a bull, or a goat, or a lamb. Unless you were totally destitute, you were so poor, there's no way in which you could get a lamb or a goat, you couldn't afford it. You couldn't, so if you had one, you couldn't give it up. If you were totally destitute, you were allowed to go out and catch a pigeon. That would be free. And you could bring a pigeon instead because you were so poor. When Mary and Joseph came to give thanksgiving for Jesus being born, they brought a pigeon. They were so destitute. There's no, no way they could afford a lamb or a goat, let alone a bull or, or, or an ox. And Joseph was a carpenter. You know, if you're absolutely destitute, you're always going to push, chop a tree down, make something out of it, and sell it, sell it in the local town. You don't have to be anybody to chop a tree down and make something out of wood. A carpenter. Lowest of the low. When Jesus came, there was a great choir of angels. They didn't appear in Jerusalem. They didn't go to Athens. They didn't go to Rome. They go to some hillside out in the middle of Galilee somewhere, and clearly people come out of Galilee. They, they go to some hills, hillside place in Galilee, and they appear to the shepherds. Shepherds, you know about shepherds? 
What happens in Africa when some child doesn't finish primary school, drops out of school, that can't, can't continue the education any further, his life is going to be, hopefully he'll never get a decent job, he's just a, he's just a, a dropout from school. What do you do with him? Answer, he said, he's supposed to look after the sheep and the goats. He spent all day just looking after the, the family animals. He's the lowest of the lower dropouts who couldn't, couldn't finish his schooling, family man of money. So all you can do is look after the sheep in the bush. The lowest of the lower, socially. And when Jesus is born, the angels make a great choir and they give this sort of royal Albert Hall celebration, singing and praising and worshipping glories of God. And, and, the, and the congregation are the shepherds. He's coming to the humblest people around. And it's these weird guys out in, out in Persia or Babylon somewhere looking at the stars trying to find a saviour. And the Lord makes a star especially for them. And the star is a, it's not, a, it's not some star that we know about. It's one specially made. It hangs low upon the sky. And it leads them and takes them all the way to the very place where Jesus is born. Jesus feels for the humble and the lowly. He's tempted at all points like as we are. I sometimes like to shock my people back home in Nairobi. And I say to them, do you think Jesus wanted to be married? And they don't like that question, it's a very shocking question to ask. Do you think Jesus ever had any sexual temptations? Do you think Jesus ever got jealous? Do you think Jesus was ever tempted to be bitter and angry? We don't always like those questions. The answer is, Jesus was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. There is no temptation that you ever go through. No problem, no difficulty, no poverty, no, no pressure, no persecution. There is nothing that you ever go through without Jesus has not been in something similar. I'm not identically the same. Jesus was never tempted to watch television too long. Not, not identical temptations, but similar in, in category, similar style. There's something in his life which is similar to every temptation, every problem, every difficulty, every challenge you'll ever have. And he's there as our great high priest. And he's praying for us. I don't mean he's begging, he's not on bended knee, that, that's not right. But he's putting requests to the Father. I will that they get to be with me where I am in glory. I will that you should keep them from the evil one. And if Jesus is putting requests for you to the Father, if he's appearing for you, as Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 9, he's appearing for you. He's saying to the Father, don't look at them, look at me. If the Lord is appearing for you and putting requests to the Father, then you are going to be all right. If Jesus is saying, I will that they get to be with me when I'm in glory, then you are going to get to glory. And nothing can stop it. Jesus does not get his prayers turned down. The Father never says no to Jesus. He prays with perfect faith. He never makes a mistake about what he's praying. He never gets a prayer, a prayer that's unanswered. If Jesus is bringing many sons to glory, then you are going to get to glory. You can have total assurance about any situation you'll ever be in. And I got sick about 14 months ago, quite badly. I was preaching in a meeting like this. And suddenly, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't eat, I couldn't speak. But I can tell you, and I'm telling the truth, I never had the slightest anxiety. I have a great high priest. Never do we need to be anxious about anything. We go with prayer and supplication. We let our, let our request be made known, Philippians chapter 4. 
there is no need for any anxiety at all. And these people here in Hebrews, they were all weak people. Look, read these people in, in Hebrews 11, these people who did something for the Lord. They're all weak people. Abraham sometimes lied. David committed murder and adultery. Gideon said, you've come to the wrong address, I'm not that mighty about me. Moses, he had to learn to be faithful. He didn't begin by being faithful. Samson, you know about Samson? He makes business and pays for a bit too much. All these guys had to have weaknesses. All these Samson, they're not so superheroes. They're all maybe like us. Elijah said, I'm no better than my father's. That's an interesting statement. He was trying to be better than his father. He was trying to be better than anybody else. He's a very ambitious guy. And James says he's a man of like passions with us. He sends us. Only he prayed. All these heroes of the faith, they're people of like passions with us. They're different from us. They're not super saints. They did what they did because they had a saviour. They did what they did because they had a great high priest. They did what they did because there was an intercession already going up for them. In the tabernacle there was a, the altar of incense and incense was going up. Into, before they even went into the holy place, incense was going up on their behalf. Before you begin, there's a prayer going up to God before you. Any prayer you pray is being mixed with Jesus' prayers. Jesus, you, you ride piggyback on, on Jesus' prayers. His prayers go into the presence of God for you. He appears for you. And there's no need for the slightest anxiety for anything. By faith and patience, you inherit the promises. So let me give you a little outline of Hebrews, and then we'll have a break for a coffee or something. It's got five sections to it. Section number one is chapters one and two, which begins with the greatness of Jesus in his power and in his sympathy. Chapter one just summarizes him. He's the last word of God. He's greater than the angels. He's the creator. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Angels, they're just servants of Jesus. He's the son of God. It's the greatness of Jesus. And how, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews 2, especially 5 to 18, deals with the sympathy of Jesus. This great Savior became a man. And uh, God's got great plans for the human race. What is man that you are mindful of him? He quotes Psalm 8. But he makes two comments. In Psalm 8, we're meant to be the lords of creation, all things under us, in a glorified position, as it were, king, king of, the, of the universe. But the writer makes two comments. Comment number one. We do not yet see all things under him. It's all things meant to be put under human grace. He's meant to be in control of himself and in control of everything else. We don't see it happening. Sin has damaged everything. We do not yet see all things under him. His second comment is, but we do see Jesus and we see all things put under him. In other words, we fulfill our destiny, which we lost by following Jesus. And he will bring us to that he's got there already and we follow him and he brings many sons to glory. That's the argument of Hebrews 2, that we've lost our destiny, but we get it back because Jesus has fulfilled it for us, and we follow him, and he brings us to our destiny as human beings. And he, he's tempted to all points as we are. He's a fellow human being. He calls us brothers and sisters. So the first section is the greatness and sympathy of Jesus. Second section, which goes from 3.1 to 4.13, it's about Jesus being a bit like Moses. Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful too. Moses was building a tabernacle, a house. 
Jesus is building a house in the sense of household or family. Sometimes the word house means a family. The queen is in the house of Windsor, who will mean the family of Windsor. Moses is building a house, but it's a physical thing. Jesus is building a house, but it's a household of people. Whose house we are, says Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, whose house we are, if we'll hold up to our faith, we'll experience being his house, if we're his household, if we persist in faith. And at that point he goes into the longest morning of Hebrews, he goes from 3, 7 to 4, 13. He's saying, well, they, they didn't follow Moses, so they didn't go to the land of Canaan. They wouldn't hear his voice, they wouldn't obey, so they, they lost a lot. So, so Jesus, he's like your new Moses, he's, he's the new builder of God's house. But you mustn't make them say that Israel made. You must hear his voice today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And let him bring you into rest. You inherit the promises. You enter into rest. And that phrase, which we'll look at at some stage, means that God so blesses you that you find it restful when you inherit the promises. And God takes an oath, I swear I'll bless you. It is supremely restful. You're just watching God move for you. You don't have to do anything anymore. The things are just coming. Entering into rest is the same as inheriting the promises. It's arriving at your destiny in this life. It's not heaven. It's arriving at your destiny in this life. In the case of Abraham, it happened in Genesis 22. Then God says, now I see that you fear me. I swear, I take an oath. I shall indeed bless you. At that point, Abraham gets everything. From that point, it is certain that he will be the ancestor of Jesus and of all believers. He inherits what God has got for him at that point. Entering into rest, inheriting the promises, having God take an oath, fulfilling the covenant, that all those are ways of putting the same thing. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 7, 28 tells us that this is going to happen by means of Jesus being a priest. He's a priest. He just uses the word priest. And he uses the word great high priest. He, he's the equivalent of the tribe of Levi. Levi produced all these priests. They were meant to be sympathetic to you. You went to them in trouble. When you sinned, you go to them. And another great high priest, Melchizedek. He's not a Levite. He's a once-off chosen high priest, king and priest at the same time, which ordinary priests couldn't be. And there's two kinds of priesthoods in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfills both of them. He's like the ultimate Levite, sympathizing, doing offering sacrifice. When you meet the Levites and the family of Aaron did for us, they did for the people. He's also like Melchizedek. When we're in trouble, when we've been in a battle, when we've been in a fight, he comes out with bread and wine, he feeds us, he comforts us, he prays for us, he intercedes for us. He fulfills all of the priesthood of the Old Testament. And then the next section, the fourth section, it goes from 8.1 to 10.18. And at that point he says that he's got to the main point. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he says the main point in which we are saying the head, or as you could translate it, the main point. The head point, the main point of all that we've been saying, he says, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 is that we have such a high priest and he has to have a sacrifice the thing that makes a priest a priest is that he's offering a sacrifice so he says now, now I've got to the main point I've been, all this has been preparing the way but now I've got to the main thing I'm trying to say that this great high priest has a sacrifice he sheds his blood that's the main point he's been trying to get to 
And so he begins to talk about the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. He begins by just laying the facts down for us in chapter 8, that he's a great high priest who is sacrificed, and he's bringing into being a new covenant. And in chapter 9, he just describes the tabernacle. And in some ways, he gets to the high point of the letter in 9, 11 to 18. 11 to 18, 9 to the end of the chapter, what verse is And then he's talking about the, the very heart of what the Lord is doing, verse 20, up to verse 28. He's shedding his blood. And he tells us what this blood can do. He tells us how it fulfills everything in the tabernacle. We are living upon the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been preaching on Hebrews a lot in Arabic cinema in Nairobi. And um, it's, produ it's produced a change in our worship. I, I noticed now other people need the worship for me. I notice now every time we begin, we begin with singing about the blood of Jesus. I think, oh, they've, they've got hold of my points. <laughs> I think in all of the blood of Jesus, they're like singing that song in Arabic cinema. Oh, the blood of Jesus. They sing it again and again. It washes white as snow. We're living upon the blood of Jesus says the Bible. Why does it use the word blood? It means the death of Jesus, but why does it use the word blood, not death? Well, because the word death is ambiguous. Jesus didn't die of old age. He didn't die of malaria. He was slaughtered as a sacrifice for sin. That's why the word blood is there. It was a bloody occasion. Blood poured out everywhere. He wasn't just dying of old age or malaria. It was a sacrifice. That's why the word blood is used. We live upon the blood, the sacrificial death of Jesus. And God is, is looking at Jesus, and Jesus is presenting his blood. He's not, he's not dying in heaven. That, that doesn't take, take place in heaven. It takes place on earth. But he is presenting his blood. He's saying, I died for them. I died for them. Look at them. Look at them. Look at me. And we're living on the blood of Jesus Christ, says Hebrews. And he works it out in those 18 verses. And so when he gets to the last section, which is chapter 10, 19 to the end, he begins by saying, since we have confidence. And I would, I would translate, since we have grounds for confidence. In English, the word confidence is a feeling. You feel confidence. But he's not talking about feelings. He's talking about facts. So you should translate, since we have grounds of confidence, since we have reasons. We have solid, objective reasons there for being confident. We can be utterly and totally sure. Let's come with boldness. He tells us that God is like a consuming fire. How can you come to a consuming fire with boldness? And it's going to burn up anything that's sinful and wicked. How can you come to, come to that with boldness? But you can. Even though God is a consuming fire. Outside in our conscience, outside in our bodies, 
totally clean, washed inside and outside, with total grounds and reasons for confidence by the blood of God, by a new and living way, not, not the old way of ritual and ceremony and tabernacles and religiosity. Religion never cleanses your conscience. Luther tried that, I and mean, here's Luther going again and again and again, becoming a monk and doing all those things. One thing he never got was a clean conscience. Never felt forgiven. Luther could keep the Catholic priests five hours in the confessional. He would go to the confessional and confess all of his sins, and when the priests saw him, saw him coming, they said, no, 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 you take them. I don't want him here. You'll keep me here all day. They would as he would try to hand him, hand him over to some other person. And he would stay in that confessional for five hours. He would try to be released. He started walking back to his monastic cell, and on his way back to his monastic cell, he would remember something else. He would turn around and go back again to confess one more sin. You never get peace of conscience by religion. I'm trying to confess your sins perfectly. By you being a monk and swearing never to get married or to be endlessly poor or whatever. Never, never cleanses your conscience. Never makes you feel forgiven. You can withdraw from society and go from some, into some holy place where you can live a holy life. The only trouble is you take yourself there. You can't leave, you can't leave your sinful heart outside. You take your own nature with you. And your own nature is as wicked inside the monastery as it was outside the monastery. You have as many problems with your fellow monks as you used to have with your fellow businessmen. You used to, used to grow with your business and then you grow with your monks. But you've still got yourself, you've still taken yourself there. You can vow you'll be holy and go to church every Sunday, say your prayers, read your Bible. Until you see, until you see the blood of Jesus Christ, your conscience will go clean. But once you see that Jesus has died for you, you believe it and you live upon it, having grounds for confidence, you've come with full assurance of faith. And you live by faith, you live like those. 20 examples in Hebrews 11, and you work it all out, and you inherit the promises. And even in this life, even before you go to heaven, the Lord might come to you and say, Oh, now I see you fear me. I swear I take an oath. I'll tell you about it. I'm not taking an oath in secret. I'll come and tell you about it. I'll tell you. I swear to you, and you'll know about it. I will indeed bless you. And at that point, you're scarcely doing it. You cease from your own labor, says. Hebrews, you're watching God move for you, watching God do things for you. By faith and persisting in faith, you inherit the promises. And it all takes place by the blood of Christ who appears for you. And I, I want to stop now, but I, I would say he appears for you in three ways. Number one, he lives for you. Number two, he died for you. The most amazing of all, Number three, he even believes for you. Your faith, his faith is perfect faith. You see, you may say, I don't have a perfect life. Okay, he lived for you. You may say, I can't deal with my sins. Okay, he died for you. You might say, I don't have perfect faith. All right, but your little faith is faith in his big faith. And he even believes for you. I live by the faith of Christ, says Paul in the old King James Version, and he is right faith of Christ. He has perfect faith for you. Faith and faith the Greek word can mean both those things. He's perfectly faithful. He's perfectly full of faith. He will live by the faith of Christ. He even believes for you. What more could you need? 
Thank you. 